The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined as ever by my good friend and producer Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing good. We're getting ready for the new Premier League season. We are and the transfer window is being wild. So I know you've been being kept busy with that, but we do not talk about the transfer window in this episode. Listeners, do not fear. We're going to talk about tactics, which is my great love. And I was lucky enough to be joined today by Liam Tharm, who's one of the tactics writers at The Athletic, for us to just have a long old chat about what we expect the tactical evolutions of next season to look like. So Mike, you caught the conversation. What did you make of it? My favorite part was the talk about the 3-4-3 shape, um, also known as the box midfield, and kind of that, that new progression into teams playing like that but then also on the flip side how do teams start defending that if that's going to be a trend going forward this season more more clubs playing that three three box three how then do you do you counter that and and I thought you and Liam had a fantastic conversation about that yeah and there's plenty of other stuff in there that we talked about along the way we talked about the rise of long ball football we talked about hybrid pressing we talked about positional versus relational ideas as well so there's plenty of things to get into there and I think the best thing for us to do is to just jump straight into the conversation So it's that time of the year where everyone is doing previews of the upcoming season. But in this episode, I want us to focus on bigger picture stuff and think about what we might be seeing happening this season from a tactical point of view in particular. So to help me with this, I'm joined by a colleague, an expert, and dare I even say it, a friend. It's Liam Tharm, who is one of The Athletic's tactics writers. Liam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I I hope the friend part applies. I'd like to think it does. I'd like to think it does too, but... It's the beginning of a new season. Are you looking forward to things? Yeah, I am now. I think last season felt it stretched on quite a while because it did stretch on quite a while. But um, yeah, after having a nice summer break and very much enjoying a lot of the Women's World Cup stuff this summer, I think I'm very much in a, yeah, all systems going now for 2023-24. Hmm. So we're going to split this episode into two parts. We're going to spend some time talking about the tactical trends of the last few seasons and think about how we're going to anticipate these trends evolving in the near future. But then we'll end by talking about some of the teams around the world that we're excited about watching this season from a tactical point of view as well. So let's jump in with that first part, because I think one of the most interesting things about tactics is that there is that evolutionary element to it. Tactics emerge because teams respond to what's been happening earlier so I think that we what we should do is we should go back and have a look at some of the trends that have cropped up in recent seasons and and start thinking about ways that we might see coaches thinking about how they're going to respond to those in the near future so the first thing I've got down on my list is box midfields because we put out a call for questions to the general public one of the biggest topics that they wanted us to talk about was box midfields so we've got a question from Kataru Kubiashi who says please discuss people's obsession with the box midfield. So box midfields are everywhere. But let's start off with the base, basics, Liam. What is a box midfield and what are they for? Yeah, they've sort of undergone a 
a slight a slight change or I think it's just become broader and more loose. So the way that I always viewed it was two defensive midfielders and it becomes more of a role thing than it does necessarily fix shape. But two defensive midfielders generally behind two number 10s or two advanced midfielders, whatever you want to call them, on a very sort of fundamental split that you've got two deeper midfielders that are generally tasked with more in possession sort of build up things, playing deep closer to their own goal and two of your more creative talents sort of further forward, generally that get played in a system with wing backs where these two advanced number 10s or uh, advanced playmakers want to play between the lines and you know closer to goal to be your creative outlets in the team. Um, effectively imagine sort of when everyone's sort of had wingers now, they've just come increasingly more and more inside, um, all the way inside now to being these sort of central players. So the classic example, I think, is probably Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea, who were playing like that, which, yeah, they, they had two central midfielders in a 3-4-3, three, three, mm-hmm. uh, and then the two wide players in the forward line would come inside, giving space for the wing-backs to push up, but also forming forming that box in the midfield. So... The emergence there, I think, is, is is a sort of natural one. If you're wanting to get your wide players into the middle, you're you're giving uh, a little bit of uh, backup from those central midfielders to allow those those wide players to go forward without having to worry about covering the space in behind. Um, why do you think they emerged as a as a as a general concept? These these box midfields is it mainly just because you're getting an, an overload in the middle with other teams playing three man midfields? Yeah, I guess it's off off the back end of that. Um, I think it's also important to remember that over the past few decades, because of course I'm well aware this is a, a shape or has roots in the old WM that, that was played sort of in, in the 50s and the 60s, but it, it might be the same sort of organisation of players, but in a much more um, controlled, systematic game where you aren't getting the goals per game rate that you were getting in the 50s and the 60s. Defences are tighter, more organised, more compact blocks, I think. Coaches now and teams want more control in the centre of the pitch because that will always and has always been the most valuable part of the pitch. But it's become a case that I think I, I can't speak too far, you know, prior to the two thousands because I simply wasn't alive and didn't watch a lot of the football <laughs> then. Um, but the wings feel like they became the important area because that's where the space was because teams would say let's congest centrally so then you know fullbacks and wings and inverted wings became valuable because they could exploit that space. And now I think. Teams put more focus and more effort on putting traps into pressing in wide areas. Um, you can't just carve through the middle of a team. So you go, okay, we're going to need another body now because the space isn't there anymore for someone to dribble through. Um, or to, you know, people are just going to get marked easily. So we need another body, as you say. And then that will also have the repercussion of if they get marked, there'll be more space out wide or, or space elsewhere. It definitely does feel as though the trend has been to try and build up through the middle. Obviously, that's because the goal is in the middle, right? Uh, and what we've been seeing more of lately, I think, is teams just trying to block out the centre of the field. So we've just had the Community Shield game between Arsenal and Manchester City, where both teams were, were doing that. Um, and I guess the idea there is that, OK, you're allowing sp- space in the wider areas, but it's much harder to e- exploit that space as well. Do you think that we're going to start seeing a movement back towards trying to exploit space in wide areas? Absolutely. I think particularly now, so we were speaking about the box midfield, that the thing that's become popular, and I, I write about this if people want to see it in the uh, end of end of season tactical trends, um, that I don't think I've seen a trend be so sort of homogenous in like the the big top teams doing it and sort of Arsenal, City and Liverpool um, moving a fullback into midfield to sort of be 
you know, that creative outlet, that, that creative player, um, which I guess makes sense because often central midfield and fullback rotations are some of the most common ones. So I guess it's just been more commonly pushing a fullback on into an advanced area in recent seasons. And it's been then the central midfielder that's been dropping out. And this is then kind of, um, you know, it's a, it's a different style. It's going the opposite way, I suppose. Um, but it was really fascinating because there were, and it's not a perfect metric, but there were 84 fullback assists last season, um, which was lower in all of the four seasons um, combined. And three of those seasons, they had over 100. So it feels like we've really gone through that peak of, you know, Trent, of uh, Robertson, of, you know, wide crosses or crosses from the half space and then big set piece threats to now, okay, we want you to be technical and creative control players. And of course, that does then mean there's going to be space for particularly, I think, bottom half teams that often have a lot of good direct attacking wingers. I'm aware that a lot of the the top teams do as well, but they just don't seem to want to play in transition as much anymore. Um, I think there's times where... They will do out of necessity and in big games, but it feels like it's massively like for Pep now, massively sort of a plan B of we're prepared to do it if we need to. And even then we don't really like doing it, but it's out of necessity. Liverpool seem to want to move away from that um, sort of transitional system, which is is fair enough. Um, But that's still going to be a threat that a lot of bottom teams have. um, And it makes sense if you're leaving space in those wide areas, teams are going to exploit it. It's interesting you mentioned Liverpool though, because, you know, there's an extent to which Manchester City... Arsenal are very they're more in the same sort of tactical genre as as one another Liverpool as you say haven't been in that genre and it's been interesting to see them experimenting with those sorts of ideas at the end of last season largely because I guess the the personnel they had didn't allow them to play the the the, the, the more traditional Klopp tactics but um yeah do, why do you think that 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 Liverpool were impelled to make those those sorts of changes. Do you think it's just the fact that they the season has sort of fought, fallen away so much they just had the freedom to be able to just experiment? And do you see them carrying on with those sorts of tactics going forward? Yeah, partly. I think I think we make a mistake sometimes of forgetting that like I don't think coaches ever truly want to play like a set system or a set way. They might have an idea of how they like football, but like any good coach, and of course these top level Premier League coaches are the best around, are going to play a system that best suits the players that they have. And then you look at as players either age or they change or players leave. I think Mane leaving was one of the biggest things that happened in terms of maybe catalyzing that. And we didn't quite notice at the time. We went, oh, it's going to impact their press. But we assumed that they could just get in a like-for-like replacement. Or we saw similar players in someone like Nunez or um, Luis Diaz or, or Jota that could come in and act as that replacement. So I think it's just a way that the, the players are changing and that the style, you know, at, at times I think coaches go, well, we need to eventually change something and evolve something in order to um, sort of move. And as you say, out of necessity sometimes when things do start going badly, I guess, you do maybe get stuck in that loop of, okay, maybe what we're doing, you then have to decipher, is the idea wrong or is the execution purely wrong? Um, And I also think that what is difficult is that transition is normally quite a reactive game. You can find your ways to, you know, force it and make it repeatable through setting traps or defending in a certain way or, you know, having certain pressing targets. But you are still reliant on your the opposition having the ball first and then winning it and doing something with it or counter-pressing a set way from when you're losing it. And I think it's just, there's that tiny bit too much chaos for a lot of the modern managers now, I think, where they say, we want to win and we want to win with a certain style and when I can do it with a way that almost means because we're going to control the ball, you can basically get, you can change your position to be whoever you want to be. It doesn't matter because um, if we're going to have the ball and play our way, then we'll find the solutions regardless of how they're sort of set up to defend. So we've already mentioned Thomas Tuchel's 3-4-3 shape, which naturally ended up with a, a box midfield. But you've also alluded to the fact that 
a lot of teams will form a box midfield by moving a player and that's generally been a fullback inverting so that's a fullback moving inside and sitting alongside us another pivot player and and then having your two eights being then able to push forward a little bit further with that extra defensive cover but I think there's been plenty of other different ways that you can form box midfield so we'll, we'll talk a, a little bit about about that now but we did have a question from Sean Nielsen on Twitter who's, who wanted us to talk about the phenomenon of fullbacks tucking in and shifting back four and midfield Alozinchenko at Arsenal now how why here to stay or tactical trend and obviously this I think fits in with the big question about box midfield so let's let's start off by talking about inverted fullbacks because I think there's been a few interesting things that have happened this season in terms of inverted fullbacks and I think maybe the the way that I would typify that is by talking again about Liverpool because what we saw from Liverpool towards the end of the season I think around the last 10 games was uh, Jurgen Klopp allowing Trent Alexander-Arnold to invert go inside um sit alongside the six and and do you know nominally form that that box midfield but it felt it felt quite different to to the sorts of things that I mean Sean himself references Zinchenko at Arsenal right which is you take a, a left back in Zinchenko move him inside gives you a, an extra player in the middle allows you to do central build up if that's what you want to do uh, and that seems to be the general the general idea with moving that player inside because it does give you that overload it does allow you to build up through the middle which as we've already said is the, the most dangerous part of the pitch to to, to attack the opposition goal uh, also gives you a little bit of defensive solidity as well in transition moments if you if you lose the ball but with Trent Alexander-Arnold, I think it was it was slightly different because with most uh, inverting fullbacks, you want them to be able to play as as pivots who can pin yeah. opposition players, right? Which is the idea being that you get inside their block, you squeeze their um, their the opposition's defensive block a little bit narrower, and you have players who can receive the ball with their backs to goal, can take the ball on the turn, uh, and and can actually progress the ball through lines of pressure in those central areas. And what we've seen a little bit more, I think, this season is maybe players who aren't able to really do that back to goal pinning stuff being moved inside as well. So I think Alexander Arnold is a really good example of that. And um, yeah, I'll I'll throw it over to you just to, for your thoughts on on the difference between Trent Alexander Arnold playing in possession in a wide place, uh, a wide area, and then and then him playing central. What do you think the, the reason for that move was? I think it's obviously got a lot to do with his, his sort of distribution and his long-range passing ability, um, which, in all fairness, he sort of completely proved me wrong with. It's something that I said, and to be fair, I think it still largely holds water in terms of bigger games against better pressing teams that... Um, I just think his spatial awareness is, is probably the, one of the biggest flaws in his game. Um, and of course, that is less problematic when you're out wide and you can have the full view of the pitch. You can see where the pressure is coming from at all angles. Of course, you need to be a better scanner if you're in midfield because your back's going to be to goal more. You need to be able to check your shoulders and then obviously see pitches quickly to hold them in your brain and then act upon them. You know, again, we're talking sort of milliseconds, but those are key differences between a player, you know, seeing the right picture and making the right turn, making the right pass. But I will say that he does suit, particularly when teams are going to sit off in more of a, a middle or a low block, that he's one of, if not the best long passes in the world. And that is a range of passes of a driven cross for ball. That can be a curl pass in behind. That can be a cross from deep. So he's effectively just a player that provides solutions in terms of a final ball. Um so that for me makes perfect sense and that is one of the two reasons why I see along with players then coming inside um, in order to, to pin a player. There was a fantastic clip, I don't know if you saw it from Zinchenko, I think it was sort of last week, he did the rounds on social media from part of a wider interview he did and he's talking about how when he moves inside he thinks his job is done if the winger comes with him. Um, fundamentally because he's saying when he plays on the left and he comes into midfield, if he pulls the right winger out or whoever's playing on the right hand side he goes then is 1v1 and suddenly you've got an angle from the centre-back to pass to the winger 1v1 all the time 
and it just increases the number of opportunities you can get for that winger to attack. And I think it's increasingly important because you see lots of teams and Arsenal now, I guess, are going to suffer from this, from the success of being good in that people are going to double up on their wingers all the time, particularly in a low block when you've got your back four, your back five deep. You'll then get a central midfielder or a winger out and Saka and Martinelli end up... Um, 1v2 it just it's massively massively more difficult um and it's just a way as we often say sort of build up is about finding solutions to problems that is finding a solution to a problem there that exists when you can get your winger attacking the fullback higher up the pitch and 1v1 more often yeah and that's a in part what we mean when we say pinning right it means pulling the opposition player who is nominally responsible for marking you into a different area so that it opens up other options so by Zinchenko going inside pulling his marking winger with him that's going to open up that angle as you say to to the 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 left winger in in that instance but I think yeah the 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 move with with Alexander Arnold inside is interesting because it to me I mean I think that Liverpool did that in order to try and replicate the sorts of ideas that the teams like Arsenal Man City are, are implementing with with that concept of you know dragging the opposition block narrower to give you better access in the wide areas um but there's a lot of things about the Liverpool approach that like didn't really work with it. One of them is that you know when you when you play that way, when you pin the opposition midfield narrow, what it allows you to do, as you said, is give you better access into the wide players. But usually that means the wide player has to drop to make the pass workable, mm-hmm. and that means you're getting someone like Mohamed Salah dropping inside down the down the channel um, to to receive defeat. And that's you know we all know that Mohamed Salah is a player who likes to get in behind facing the goal, running on those diagonal lines. And I think one of the things we saw from Liverpool to solve that problem of and and you know the the part of the problem is that you're just getting Salah away from the areas where he's really dangerous, right? You don't want to do that as a coach. Um, one of the solutions that they used was was by having the the the, the eights, the the Liverpool eights, move out and, and offer the width mm-hmm. instead of the uh, instead of the forwards as well. So for me, that was one of the reasons why why the system didn't really work because from a pinning point of view doesn't really suit the sort of players that the Liverpool have. But I do really like the idea of actually getting Alexander-Arnold inside from the point of view, as you said, if it just opens up a huge range of passing options. If you're playing as a fullback, the options available to you are play the ball, you know, down down the line or play a crossfield ball or you know play play inside to a central midfielder as soon as he's moving inside suddenly he has the option of playing those penetrative passes through the middle as well which is something that that Liverpool were missing as well and and so I think that's been a bit of a um, a tactical evolution that we saw even last season the the idea of having an inverted fullback who's not actually doing you know the positional pinning stuff that we know that that Pep Guardiola and Mikel Arteta want to do um, but but this more this, this different role and I read a piece recently by Lorca Reese, who calls this role the the pendulum pivot. So this idea that you're going to invert the fullback, but rather than getting them inside the opposition block, mm. you're going to have them sitting outside. So they can still receive the ball facing down the field. They're still going to be able to have all of the upside that they offer when they're when they're in possession, um, but in such a way that they don't have to be really good press-resistant midfielder options as well. So Arsenal did that in the um, pre-season when they played against Nuremberg uh, using Kivior on the left-hand side and he was coming inside. But rather, again, rather than doing what Zinchenko is doing and trying to drag wingers with him and get inside the block and make that that block narrow, he's actually sitting outside the block so he can receive ball to feet uh, and and progress the ball there. And I think that's an interesting concept as well when you consider that Arsenal have signed Declan Rice, who is, again, another one of those players who isn't, really elite in terms of receiving the ball uh, back to back to goal he actually is much better when he receives facing the opposition goal and I think that could be a solution that we're going to start seeing especially now that as the, the news is coming out we, we're seeing all of these um, the, these midfielders now who are being brought in across 
the Premier League, but you know, you're, you're, we're talking about physical midfielders now who are, are going to be good ball carriers, um, and uh, you know, don't have the the sort of usual on-ball technical um, ability to be able to play as as that kind of pivot player. So I've just said a lot of things there. You must have some thoughts about some of the, the, the ideas. No, I agree with Rice 100%. I thought some of his best moments in the first half of that community shield in possession were pulling out wide on the left and, and being parts of those rotations there to push push Timber on um, and to just sort of connect play through that way. So again, as, as I think I sort of mentioned at the start, that it's there's lots of overlap in terms of how it can look in terms of what teams are doing, but... The reality is they're all doing it in very different ways and that's also because if you compared even Arsenal and City further on up the field that they've got very different types of number nines for instance or they've got wingers who are going to play in sort of very different ways even if they're both playing normally a number nine and a left-footed right winger and a right-footed left winger. Um, it's just entirely different and it's down to the, the coaches which obviously is going to sound silly but they're maximising the players that they have um, and it's not a case of we're playing this because I want it to look in this, this set way. It's a case of organising the jigsaw piece, if you will, into a way that, that best fits. Um, and I think Spurs are now an interesting example of that as well. Um, I watched their, I actually went to their pre-season game uh, against Shakhtar um, and it, it starts to reach an interesting point in terms of it can get players into uh, effective positions, but it's a case of who do you want on the ball in which areas? Because I thought it really suited Destiny Udogi off the left. He's a right-footed uh, was a wing back at Udinese on loan, but really, really good forward runner, really good underlapper. And there just became a pattern on the left side where uh, I think it was Ben Davis who was left centre back, basically had an open spot when Udogi would push on and push inside to go all the way into Son, into feet. He could attack 1v1, Udogi would underlap. Didn't quite lead to any sort of big moments, but constantly, of course, you've got a fullback underlapping, going to take a defender away. You've kept someone 1v1, you've you know given him a, a player to support, you can make a 2v2. Um, but on the right hand side, it just didn't quite work as well between Emerson and, and Kudasevsky, partly because I think Emerson's, you know, got three lungs, I think. He can run run for miles. Um, but when he was getting on, and he was actually getting on the ball quite a bit in the final third, he just seemed a bit panicked that he evidently didn't seem to be used to playing in these spaces. I don't think he's as technically proficient as some of the other players in the Spurs squad. But then it got to the point of the system's really good. You're getting players into space in areas, but you go, do you want your right back on the ball on the edge of the box? Because um, then you get, okay, it's really good. And that might that might be a repeatable pattern. But if your right back's on the ball on the edge of the box and then they can't cross from there or they can't shoot, the system's working, but is it working as well as it could do or as well as you need it to? And it's a case of where I think we often look at systems in broad terms and players, you know, each person is worth one. They are a one and a back three or one in a, in a midfield four in a midfield box. And that is true largely because players are all at a very high standard now where teams will leave people 1v1. But players have also got very specific set attributes that they are really good at. Trent is a is a prime example of that. There's a reason why he hasn't moved inside just to pin someone. It's because he is a really good passer. And I'm intrigued now as to as more sort of coaches try it, I wonder if we've just had a you know a small generation of fullbacks that have seen people crossing and being creative all the time from wide, suddenly they go, everyone goes, oh no, we want you to play inside now. And you go, well, what, what have my last five, 10 years of development just been for where I've just seen the rise of the overlapping fullback and everything. So it's um, that part, I'm intrigued for yeah, the next few seasons, how that will shape up from a defender's perspective. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you talking about underlapping fullbacks as well, because I think people use the term inversion of fullbacks just way too generally. I think we need a better vocabulary of, of, of words to explain what roles fullbacks are playing when they come inside, because I think there's a big difference between, for example, what Zinchenko is doing for Arsenal and, and for example, what uh, you've mentioned, Destiny Udogi, what, what he's doing 
for Spurs is very different as well because the overall tactical picture changes but we're at risk of just spending this whole podcast talking simply about inverting fullback so I want to talk quickly just about a few of um, the different approaches that have emerged I think particularly not in this season but they've become um, talked about this season different ways of forming a box midfield so we've talked about inverting fullbacks which has been the standard way but what we saw this season actually with Manchester City was quite interesting because we saw two things I lump these two together one of them is was the the John Stones position which was John Stones starting as a centre-back and then pushing forward into the pivot so rather than being an inverting fullback he was more of a and I, I guess you could call it an inverting centre-back although that that word has <laughs> a different meaning um, going back to Chris Wilder but the, the idea then that you're rather than having your fullback push out your 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 centre back is 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 going to push up, and mm. um, I guess the the big change there is that it changes the the angles defensively. So if you have a a, a fullback pushing forward into the pivot in defensive transition, they're going to be dropping out in a diagonal uh, movement, often against the the way that the the ball will be coming through the opposition. Uh, with a with a centre back doing that, you've got a little bit more of a straight line uh, re- retreat back to your defensive position. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you, th- do you think that's just a natural, uh, an, a natural reality that in defensive moments you want the shortest, least, you know, the path of least resistance back to your defensive position? And is that why that that emerged, or was it again? I mean, Pep Guardiola had John Stones. When if you have a player like John Stones who can play that kind of role, then it makes it a lot easier to do as well. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget he tried Rico Lewis there, didn't he, in terms of a fullback coming side, and Bernardo as well for a couple of games, uh, including, I think, was it was it Arsenal away in the, the win there? So um, clearly something he's tried over a period of time. Um, and I think there were some good quotes from a few years back where he said, John Tones could play midfield if he wants to. He's excellent. Um, yeah, I, I think it's maybe also an interesting thing in terms of cover, that if you've got um, a fullback coming inside, obviously you just leave a big gaping hole on sort of one side of the pitch, um, which maybe is a bit too enticing in terms of, you know, leaving a spot to play into, you're kind of baiting that first pass into that zone. And of course, if a team, if you've got your right back going inside, if they've got a good left winger, they will exploit that or they'll find a way or they'll set a plan to try and do that. I think if you at least take the centre-back out, you've got cover of another centre-back from stepping forward. You've also got, particularly someone like Edison at City, you've got a keeper that can probably come out and sweep and can fill that void. So I guess you can maintain sort of the, the balance that way. But as you say, defensively, one of the principles of sort of... um cover and balance and your your recovery runs are yeah straight lines recover to goal as quickly as possible um and i think it makes more sense because you then got a defender covering the center of the goal rather than sort of leaving that wide space exposed yeah and then i've got a second moment last season which i've called the john stones 2.0 position um because what we've talked about already is John Stone starting as a centre-back in build-up and pushing forward in the second phase of of that of that build-up moment to become a pivot player um because you then start off with a with a, you know, effectively a back four gives you extra plays in that first line. Um, then when you've moved forward, you can then get, get John Stones moving into that more advanced position. But what we started seeing by the end of the season was John Stones just starting out as a pivot. Um, so Man Man City building up out of a three-two shape, but having the opportunity for Edison to form part of that chain at the back uh, as well so that they were essentially starting with a with a back four and then a, and then a, a double pivot in that first phase of build-up um, which I think was interesting as well they, they didn't even see the need to actually have that safety buffer in the first phase they they just went straight to it um, to, to the, the second phase shape in the first phase if that makes sense so yeah uh, I, and I think that was that was really interesting to see as well do you have any any thoughts on on that why they they went that way um I, I guess it's a case of trying to produce overloads further up the pitch. Um, as, as we were sort of saying, I think before we started recording, that 
you know, when you can bring the goalkeeper into the build-up play, in particular when you've got a keeper that's got such effective long distribution that teams will press outfield with 10, you know, keepers not yet anyway, are not part of the press. So if you can bring your goalkeeper into it, you're going to have a spare player somewhere regardless, or there'll be space that you can create as a result of that. So um, it's, of course, also very opposition dependent. I think it depends often whether you've got a mid-block or sort of a real high press that you're facing, whether teams are going so sort of man for man or um, sort of leaving the goalkeeper to, to be in possession. So, yeah, I think they'll massively adapt it based on that. And it's just a case of systems being refined across the course of a season. I think that's what can really help when you look back at, at things over a period because at times in the season we get very caught up with like, oh, there's this new thing, this player's changing, you tried this tactic and you can sort of look back and evaluate. Not a case of like turning points or this is where they won or lost the season, quote unquote, but a case of going, oh, okay, this, you know, City often come into form at the end of the season. The season it might have been because they made these tweaks to the system. I think it wasn't until their one or defeat at Anfield in maybe was it November or late October where I think they first tried the, the three box three, but they had, I think Foden was left wing back in that game and maybe Carl Walker was right wing back. And like you look at the personnel between the first time they tried it in that game and towards the end of the season and so many of them are, are completely different. In fact, sorry, I think it was Jao Cancelo at right wing back because obviously, of course, he then left uh, on loan in January and it was like, these things take so much time, even in a condensed season, to uh, yeah, to try and sort of bring them all together. And I guess one of the um, the the results of having one of your backline invert in some way is that you end up with a back three, and I think what we see we saw in the course of this season was again Pep Guardiola moving to a system where he was using essentially just big defensive players in those outside centre back positions in the back three that emerges from your your inversion, um, and so we've seen Manuel Akanji being played there, we've seen Nathan Aki being played there, we've seen Kyle Walker being played there. Um, I think that's a that's a that's been a really interesting thing, especially because we've seen Manchester City now by Josko Gvardiol from RB Leipzig, who's probably one of the best sorts of, of, of these kinds of players now who can play as outside centre backs or, or or full backs. So um, the the term that is often given to those is is elbow backs. So the the ability of a player, I guess the the shape of an elbow is yeah. you know ninety degree angle. The ability of those players to either come inside or push forward mm-hmm. uh, as a, as almost a, as a full back full back correlate. Um, and I guess the the part of the reason for that is because when you do invert a player from your back line, you are narrowing the the play. Your build up unit is going to be much much narrower. And as you've said, there is the ability to uh, exploit that if the opposition is able to turn over the ball. So you want to have those good one v one defenders in those wide areas. So if, again, Liverpool's a good example of that. We've seen. Uh, lots of narratives about Trent Alexander-Arnold not being good enough defending in certain transitional moments from that wide position. Now Liverpool have been moving him inside so he can cover in the central spaces, but it means that someone like Ibrahima Kanate can can sit on that wide area and offers a lot more, um, I guess, co- uh, a, a lot more, I guess, physical prowess in those sorts of wide cover areas. And also, I think like the the angles again to to talk about the defensive angles change right when the difference between you know a, a fullback trying to evert go back into the position they were originally in from a central position when the opposition are coming down the wing is very different to a, an outside center back stepping forward on the angle into the into the on rushing player as well so um yeah do you think that's something that we're going to start seeing now we're going to see we're going to start seeing a lot of um center backs being used as fullbacks um because eventually at some point they will become outside center backs once the the in possession shape changes 
Yeah, quite possibly. Um, I think it feels like it's an exploitable thing from an attacking perspective as well. As noted in the Community Shield that Havertz was leading the Arsenal press in the first half, trying to cut off the one to Stones first, which again might be a case of let's try and not get the ball to their best build-up player, but also let's force them down the left. And um, there were a couple of times, I think, where uh, Saka sort of got at Akanji out wide in the first half. And um, it's maybe even just a perception bias thing of seeing you know a big person that we know as a centre-back sort of being a physical presence going, oh yeah, a winger can run at them, a winger can sort of um, do them damage. But it reminded me, similarly, this is more in possession, but at the World Cup that teams sort of did that, a lot of teams did that quite effectively with their fullbacks of playing sort of one more attack-minded fullback, one more defensive and effectively in attack, pushing that fullback really high and wide. I'm thinking of France as a prime example with Teo Hernandez. Um, effectively at times playing on the last line and then tucking the right back in and forming a, a back through that way and I think just at times when you can be asymmetrical could be really awkward to defend against because naturally defending particularly when it becomes zonal um, and in an, in an organised block is a case of like having balance you know your distance between your units your relationship between the players there and, and the lines and suddenly when on one side they've got a really different problem to the other side you're kind of then like how do we defend this in an organised balanced manner I think it just adds in a bit more chaos and unpredictability that way. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Well, we spent a lot of time talking about that trend last season. Let's start thinking a little bit about how we're going to see responses to that trend coming up. So I've got two, just two ideas that I've thrown in here. We've already mentioned the narrowness. You've been talking about it a little bit there. Mm -hmm. Do you expect to see teams trying to exploit the narrowness that emerges when you're making your build-up unit a lot, you know, a lot more central? Um, and and why do you think we haven't seen much of that happening so far? I guess there's a reason why the trend has gone that way because no one's found a solution to it yet. But do you think that we're going to see teams trying to exploit that narrowness going forward? Yeah, I think so. I think it also is probably quite awkward to try and exploit compared to sort of other setups because you look at where the the bodies are congested sort of in the central area of the pitch that if you want to then, if you want to do a ball-orientated press and press with, you know, more defenders than they've got sort of in the final third that you're either then going to leave them plus one in midfield or sort of um, or on the last line of defence, which I think teams just fundamentally don't want. It's a case of where, where will you have risk or reward and I guess teams would rather sort of press 2v3 in in that first line um, and be more content with that because you go, oh, well, okay, at least if they keep it there, then it's fine, it's in their defensive third, it's on the halfway line, it's not close to our goal or further outfield. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's hard to press effectively against that sort of shape, particularly when teams want to go man for man now. Um, and particularly because obviously it's a, it's a system that's so built around rotations that, Players can just start moving to drag people out of the way. Um, There's a really, really good example, um, I think, in the Italian Cup um, final between Fiorentina and, and Inter, where Fiorentina pressed into really high. And of course, this is a slightly different shape. It's more of a 3 5 2 than, than a box. But there became a point where, like, the number nine was just really deep towards his own goal and they pulled a centre-back high. And of course, it, the system doesn't necessarily matter in that regard, but there were just players scattered all over the pitch that weren't in their normal zones because they're just going to track and they're going to follow. So um, I wonder whether teams um, sort of maybe go more zonally against sort of these sorts of um, operation or these, these schemes of play and just sort of see, OK, what happens if we do let him go inside and not pull that winger out? Um, and it's just awkward to set traps against in that regard. 
Yeah, and I think as well the Manchester City goal in the Community Shield came in the second half when Manchester City were much more adept, I think, at manipulating the Arsenal press. So they generated a lot more space. They isolated Thomas Partey, got the ball into Phil Foden, who was then able to cut, turn Partey in part because Partey had to step forward uh, at speed to try and stop that, that ball being played and that makes it less stable. And then once you've done that, once you've got through that first line of the of, of the first few lines of the Arsenal press where they are going quite player for player, you're then sort of 4v4 against their, their back line, right? Um, so I think we'll, that's something we'll see more and more. And I guess that brings me on to um, another aspect where I could I can see um, some way of being able to exploit these box midfields. And one of them is um, exploiting transitional moments. What I mean by that is in, we've already talked about this a lot, but when with with all of these box midfields, you're either moving a player into another player into another position in possession in order to form your box midfield, or you do what City were doing at the end of the season last season, which was starting out with a box midfield, but then having one of the players move into a different position in the defensive moments. Uh, and I think what we're going to start seeing more and more, um, and this will be a, actually a theme that we talk about a few times today, is. Um, teams recognising what these transitional routes and, and moments look like and then trying to actually force teams to be in these transitional moments and then try and exploit them, if that makes sense. So recognising, as we've already said, for example, a fullback, if you're inverting your fullback, then there's going to be situations in defensive transition where that fullback has to go out wide. Can you force those uh, turnovers in certain areas that can cause problems for them? Can you have uh, prescribed routes when you've turned the ball over, where you can try and move the ball into those areas as quickly as possible, etc. Um, I think that's the sort of thing we're going we're to start seeing. There's going to be teams actually recognising that the the space, the, the movement between one position to another, those are the those are the spaces and the moments when you can actually cause teams problems. Completely, it's something we actually saw across the board sort of last season as I think the start of what I expect to see a form of, uh, of re-rising this in terms of counter-attack goals. Um, the Opta definition for this has been tweaked a bit over the past few years, but their sort of fast break definition that they now use has been in place since 2018-19. Uh, and last season we had 87 counter-attack goals. Now going back in the four seasons preceding that for the same definition, it was 54, 56, 76 and 68. Um, so we had a massive sort of spike. This is It was also the second most counter-attack um, expected goals that we had in terms of shots. So I was really amazed to see, and I think a lot of us instantly sort of tied it to World Cup stuff, you know, reduced sort of time uh, on the training ground and just what felt like a generally quite chaotic Premier League season. But sort of going back through it, I was amazed to see that um, Liverpool, United, Spurs were all up there in terms of set, um, counter-attack goals. City had their best counter-attacking season in the Premier League, I believe under Guardiola so far. Um, and it's interesting that this was a style that I think has always been seen as it's what inferior teams have to do because they didn't have another way of attacking. They couldn't control the ball. It was always a reactive moment. But now I think that you've got, particularly as a result of a lot of top teams having those inverted wingers that are quick players, are direct players that can attack individually, are good goal scorers, um, having goalkeepers that can launch a ball, you know, quite a long way in transition. And I think generally we'll come onto this um, sort of more often that the rise of possession and we're going to, I know we're going to touch on pressing later but both of those things becoming homogenous things down the Premier League that almost everyone not quite everyone there's always the outliers which I think are fantastic teams that just don't really care for the way the grain's going but more teams want possession which means there's more opportunity to counter-attack um, and more teams want to press which means obviously there's then more different ways you can find solutions in terms of build-up so completely I think it amazed me that counter-attacks are sort of coming back up in that regard. I wonder if it's going to be tied to sort of a number nine coming more back into the fold of more top teams wanting that player that can either run in behind or just 
be a less of a high touch player and more someone that's going to do more of their damage towards the towards the edge of the box. So um, I think there's a sort of a few different offshoots all sort of happening at the same time that are just these new sort of germinating things. It feels like we're out of that sort of early Pep sort of era, early sort of Klopp era of like pressing becoming sort of fashionable was like, these aren't just fashionable anymore as concepts. There's now, you know, details to it and it's more going through evolutions and different variations. And so what we're talking about, I think overall here is the rise of the long ball again. Um, but, and I think you've alluded to it there already, that there's, there's, I think, a pejorative sense with long ball football, right? Which is, in the past, teams did that because they didn't have the technical quality to do anything else. And I think what we're going to start seeing now is that we're going to see very, very technical approaches to long ball football, which recognise... So we've talked about box midfields and, and you know, there's, there's transitional moments between your, your defensive structure and your attacking structure that can be exploited. Uh, and that's, I think, true in every area. And, and, and I think maybe the most interesting area is the, you mentioned there again, the, the rise of pressing. Because what we've seen happening now is that, as, as you've said, most teams are going to try and press high in, in the opposition's build-up phase because they want to destabilise the, the opposition. But that comes at a cost, which is you leave yourself exposed at the back. And so what we're seeing is the rise of these hybrid pressing approaches, which is in certain phases you're going to go high, you're going to go player for player to try and cause as much problem for the opposition. But as soon as that press gets broken, yeah. you then have these exit strategies to get back into a lower zonal um, structure as well. That's another transitional moment, right? Transitioning between your high press and your defensive um, zonal structure and again I think those are going to be the sorts of situations that the teams are going to start exploiting a little bit more so uh, Brighton is the team that you support and we've seen examples of them actually doing some good stuff in um, in pre-season they played against Brentford I believe it was and I thought actually Brentford's high press on Brighton was was brilliant in that game and you know that's that's the thing everyone likes to talk about everyone likes to talk about Brighton's build-up uh, and there's you know the famous Roberto De Zerbi quotes where he says I don't like to go long ball because it's a, like a lo loss of control but what we've started seeing from Brighton now is them recognizing that teams are going to have solutions to their their build-up their deep build-up and so they're developing these solutions they can have by just bypassing the press going long and being able to uh, exploit weaknesses in the opposition shape and I think that's what it comes down to right it's that this is not just yeet ball for yeet ball's sake this is actually the 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 opportunity cost has changed because of the way that teams are pressing that it's now much better for us to go long and try and force these these sorts of chances and I think Simon Adingra scored a a goal from one of those situations, right? Yeah, and it's it's quite funny because it's an almost identical pattern of goal um, to what Carol Matoma scored in the three-all draw against Brentford at the Amex, which was in April, and of course, this was only a few months later. Um, and again, when we're sort of talking about players and uh, exploiting the attributes that these players have, one of the ways we didn't talk about forming a box midfield actually that, that Brighton had done was they'd sort of have the number nine would drop deeper um, in build-up and effectively sort of be on the same um, sort of horizontal, sorry, not horizontal, the same vertical line as one of the central midfielders and would try to sort of pull wide and receive if they could go into the pivot to play into the number nine. So you'd basically have um, the, the two fullbacks would be more advanced. You'd have the two centre-backs split deep between the goalkeeper. The double pivot would be, let's say, edge of the box. Number nine would not be on, say, the, the halfway line pinning a defender. They'd be dropping deep. Um, and your two most advanced players would be the two wingers and they would be generally out on the touchline. But these are two inverted wingers. And the pitch you then end up with and um, the way that Brentford were pressing was, was man for man, as you say, was really good. And I think actually, particularly um, in the April game um, between Brighton and Brentford, they pressed them really well at the start and they, they made errors. And Brentford, I think, led twice in the game or led three times in the game um but they were leaving a 2v2 at the back because their centre-backs were stepping up with uh, sort of the, the number nine and often the number nine will make as Jason Steele sort of 
got his soul on the ball and he's rolling it out towards the edge of the box and sort of the press is sort of still waiting for the moment to jump or waiting for something to happen and still just taking a couple yards, a couple yards. The number nine will then sprint sort of back in and really drop in deep towards their own goal. I don't know whether they're actually genuinely trying to receive the ball or whether this is just a pu purely to pull a defender high, mm -hmm. but then it opens up the fact you've got, okay, you've got a 1v1 between a winger and a fullback, and if it's Karim Matomo or Samuel Dingra, who have got most people for pace, you can then play that clip from in behind. Um, and I guess as well, often the way that fullbacks are taught to you know, shape their body is you're probably going to try and mirror the, the winger. So if the winger is facing the goal, you're actually facing the winger with your back to your own goal. Um, ideally with your feet that are matching, you know, that are in line with that winger so that you can basically just mirror them and follow their run. And of course, if that then goes over the top of you and goes inside you and behind your back, you've suddenly got to spin your hips and then you're either going to lose sight of where the ball is or you lose sight of where the player is. And it must just be massively discombobulating because especially someone like Karim Matoma, who's got such a fast sort of sprinting start. Um, yeah, you lose that half second, suddenly you're on the back foot and then there's a chance to score on there. I think it's really, really fascinating. Um, it's obviously something City have massively in their locker as well. I think Arsenal do anyway with Ramsdale, could even more so with David Raya. Um, and it will make sense because teams are getting better at pressing. Top teams are getting really, really good. Um, and I'll quickly just go through some of the numbers that... Um, Last season, there were just over 2,600 high turnovers in, in the Premier League, which is across all the teams, um, which is a 25% rise from 2018-19. So just sort of four or five seasons ago, which was just over 2,100. So you're seeing hundreds of more high turnovers, which I guess across the full season might only be sort of one, two or three a game. But it's notable that we can see how, how high these teams are pressing now. Yeah, and I think the thing to note here is that part of the reason for this is that t because teams are playing these hybrid structures, they have to have these really, I think, mechanical routes in order to move into the high press and then drop back into the into the lower block. And I think those those routes are re repetitive and therefore are manipulable, right? So again, we talked already about the community shield with actually what Manchester City were able to do in the second half was manipulate the fact that party is one trying to add extra cover in front of the back line but also in certain situations he has to step up to make sure there isn't a free player and what City were doing was manipulating it so he had to step up and then in those moments you then know there's going to be a lot of space in between the, the line of the pressing unit but then the back line and they were trying to find those those situations as well so again I want to I want to reiterate that I think so much of this stuff that's happening despite the fact we're going to call it long ball or transitional football um, is based around the idea that actually you're generating space to exploit and that makes it uh, you know it's a lower risk way of playing because you are uh, changing the odds in your favor as well so I think that's definitely something to look out for next season one final uh, tactical idea I think before we move quickly on to talk about some of the teams we're looking forward to talking about uh, to watch last seat next season um, but we need to talk a little bit about position versus relation uh, so Abhishek Raj on Twitter said can we talk about Fluminense and the impact of relation relationism based approaches in the European game especially in the Premier League we've seen Eric Ten Hag introduce elements of it at Manchester United in a system largely anchored in positional play principles is this the most likely manifestation now I think we need to talk about the basics of the differences between relation and and position but uh, do you want to do you want to talk to us about that I think you're more qualified than I to, to discuss that. <laughs> well, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but essentially the 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 argument is is that positional play is a style of football that has been developed um, through various routes. I think I, most people would say starting with total football in, in the Netherlands. So Rinus Michels, um, uh, Jan Krauf, and then and then we're talking about Pep Guardiola at, at Barcelona. And the idea there, I think, is that you, what you're doing is you're using you're using 
positional uh, and, and structural ideas in order to exploit space, in order to be, be able to give your players time and space on the ball. Um, and I think this is very different from what had gone before because what was going on before was a lot more, I guess, individualist based. So it's this idea that you want to get your best players into into certain situations where they're able to um, work off their teammates and you make the most of the fact that, you know, you, that you're most talented individuals. If you can get them into those sorts of uh, relationships with, with with their talented teammates, then you're going to get a, a huge amount of upside there. And I think that there's a, the, the argument generally is, is that football has become quite stale because of this position positional approach because Pep Guardiola did it and I think a lot of people just assume as a result of that therefore this is the only way you can play football um, and what we're seeing now is a rise of uh, I think maybe a, a bit of a pushback which is rather than saying you know you need to the, the big thing with positional play that often people talk about is you know the rational occupation of space um, making sure that you're you're spreading your players across the pitch in certain areas we've talked about pinning already right which is like making we've talked about it in particularly in terms of making uh, the build-up structures of, uh, narrow so that the opposition become narrow and it gives you better access into wide areas but then there's the other uh, uh, concept of pinning which is you know using your wide players to be touchline hugging wingers for example that spreads out the back line it creates space for you to to be able to manipulate and the whole idea i think behind positional play is to manipulate space in order to be able to move the ball through lines of pressure that the opposition uh, are, are trying to stop you from getting the ball through in order to generate chances but now what we're seeing particularly with fernando denise who's the coach of fluminense is this and approach now, right as well yeah, and, yeah, and there's a few people here, here and there who are talked about a lot. The the coach of Malmo, uh, as well, is is a, a guy who's using those sorts of ideas in in Europe. But the idea with them, and what you will see a lot of these um, uh, relational fans talking about, is you know it's, it's it's doing things that look unusual to I think fans of of usually European football. Uh, it's it's you know getting players into close proximity it's about getting them to play these one two passes and move the ball through pressure through I guess individual moments uh, as much as anything and that, that's not to say there's no structure there there's no planning there I think there is and, and obviously a lot of these players work very hard at being able to um, play in those kinds of ways um, and I guess Abhishek's question is like are we going to start seeing some of these more relational ideas so overloading in certain in certain um, situations playing one twos being able to work opposition um, uh, back lines through the through i guess just you know in in innate skill rather than just let, let's try and make the tactics generate those chances as well so yeah what's your thoughts on on all of this i mean i think someone who's always grown up consuming primarily european football it's it's really refreshing to see as a, as a different way um of course you say it's more about the playing relationships it feels just more like relational football being and again these aren't like binaries these are things that exist somewhere on a continuum with these being sort of end, end points um it's more about players having the freedom to try and solve the problems themselves rather than a coach saying, here's our tactical plan. Of course, I don't assume Pep Guardiola doesn't ever listen to his players, but I imagine he's saying, look, we want to play in this certain way. Um, yeah, just sort of removing the the coach or the, the manager is like the, um, it's the, the bearer of all the knowledge in the situation and sort of empowering the players more. Um, and I think it, it largely makes sense, especially, you know, or elements of it make sense. I think Real Madrid are a really good sort of halfway house between that. Um, I was thinking particularly of their, um, would have been their second leg against Chelsea in the Champions League last season where um, some of the link-up play between uh, Vinicius, it was Rodrigo and Benzema, sort of all overloading on the same side of the pitch, connecting together. It can be really hard to defend against in the sense that you know, your left back doesn't want to come across all the way to the right-hand side of the pitch because they do that, space opens up in their sort of zone and that, 
it completely exploits any form of zonal marking um, and can also exploit man marking because obviously you're then dragging players. So um, it would require a really sophisticated, you know, a relational style of actually defending because I don't think we do mm. relational defending at all because of course we think that would just be pure chaos if we go, we can try and figure it out between us. Um, so yeah, Fluminense, as you say, a, a really interesting team to watch. Um, I've watched a few, of their, a few of their games and some of their clips and it's also really valuable, I think, of anyone that's grown up like I have primarily watching European football because it requires a lot of active cognitive dissonance to try and see it and go, this looks like everything I've been told doesn't work at elite level or shouldn't work at top level. And of course it does because these are players that um, work particularly well together uh, and have established sort of playing relationships. And it makes sense now, I think, particularly as the technical quality of football has got higher and the game's got faster and players can, you know, solve solve things better on their own. Um, and particularly with wingers, I think, inverted wingers are often number nine, so presumably do a lot of their play anyway, sort of on their own um, and, and are good at sort of connecting in that way, you know. Uh, a winger naturally can connect with a fullback on the overlap. That's sort of an established thing in positional play, right? If inverted winger comes inside, fullback overlaps. So that's not really any different to left winger and right winger playing a one-two. It's just the position, if you want to call it that, has changed on the pitch of how we're sort of perceiving it. Yeah, and there still are structures in uh, relational play as well. So one of the concepts that's often talked about is the concept of the Escadinha, which is, I guess, staircase in, in Portuguese. And that's this this concept of you know getting players on the same diagonal lines so that you can you know emphasize those relations between the the players that you have and and, and be able to move the ball in, in that kind of way as well so yeah I think this is this is really interesting um, it's worth saying that as well I, you've already mentioned that there's a, a spectrum here um, for example I think you know overload to isolate is a concept that is talked about in positional play a lot and that's the again this idea that you overload all of your players on one side to generate uh, superiority either qualitative or or numerical on an, in another part of the pitch now that's very positional vocabulary there but again what you're what you're talking about there is if you get a lot of players around the ball you can keep the ball better you can drag opposition players out of the way um and 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 use that as a way of uh, exploiting opposition um structures as well um but I think we are going to start seeing, you know, more of this, more of this stuff happening, especially because, as you've mentioned, Real Madrid are a pretty good halfway house between, you know, a really overly structured uh, approach with with top down. I guess it, it's a nice way of thinking about it in terms of top down, which is maybe the manager imposing their ideas on the player, and then bottom up, which is the manager allowing players to solve problems yeah, yeah. on the pitch as well. Right. Let's talk a little bit then. I, we've talked for so long about all of this stuff and I've had a great time, but um, we were going to talk a, a little bit about some of the teams that you're looking forward to watching next season. You have written a piece called Tactics to Look Out for This Season, Anti-Positional Football, which is what we've just been talking about, Xabi Alonso and Middlesbrough. Um, I think maybe what, you, what we should do is just ba- both pick maybe one one or two teams that we're actually kind of interested in watching from a from a tactical point of view next season so who would you who would you like to kick off with I think Lens were one of the teams that stood out for me wanting to sort of make that piece um in the first place and as I said in the piece it's not an exhaust exhaustive list this is purely some teams that I thought were cool and I think one of the best things about um sort of the platform that I've got now and of course the stuff that you know you do on Twitter as well is that people are really good at sharing ideas of this team is cool um you know there's been teams that I've seen recommended all the way in sort of South Africa there's um I think the the sundowns yeah, there with some of their the uh, some of their pressing coach Rulani there, there you go. But um, yeah. the fact that all this is sort of accessible now is is really, really cool. Um, but Lons, I just thought, were, were great because obviously everyone's got quite fed up with, with PSG just sort of dominating Liga. Um, they played a really, really nice, you know, I, I, 
John and I often get into sort of discussions. <laughs> it's going to sound like disagreements, but it's not in that I think I, I tend to quite enjoy quite effective defensive football not in the sense of like a low block or um but just teams that are good at effectively keeping clean sheets and minimizing the goals that you're they a brighton concede. fan who's disappointed um, with with roberto de Zerbi's lack of clean sheets clean sheets are always a nice bonus <laughs> I, don't, I don't know maybe it's the english side of the game coming out of me um, <laughs> liking the defending but um no lance were exceptional last season their home record was incredible they won i think it was um 17 of 19 games at home um they had the fewest goals conceded, just 29 in their league games, uh, 15 clean sheets and lost just four games. Um, they attacked in a really nice 3-4-3, defended in a 5-4-1. Um, of course, the elephants in the room with that team um, are Fafana and Appenda, who have both left. But there's a really fair point that they had uh, Arno Kalimuendo, I think, a couple of seasons back. Um, and they also had uh, Jonathan Klaus, who was their top assister in that season. And they sold both of them, or I think, sorry, Kalimundo was on loan and left. Um, and then they brought in a Pender. Um, and of course, then they brought through Fafana and then came second. So it's like, this is a team that are used to sort of selling players. But they finished second. They're in the Champions League next season. They're really good at attacking through wide areas. They press really high as well. Um, really nice sort of out of possession team. Um, and they can be a really good transitional counter-attack team when they need to as well. So they're kind of like... They're kind of a bit of everything and they've not got sort of one set way of playing and of course that's why they're able to win so many games so they can find solutions but um yeah i thought they were exciting and their home record is so good it makes them exciting i think in particular to watching the champions league um where they're there i think for the first time since 2002 2003 so um that i'm sure will be incredible yeah, Ligue 1, an interesting league. I think that we're seeing a lot more tactical coaches move there, so I'm quite excited to see Francesco Farioli, who's just gone to Nice. Um, he'll be fun to watch. He's uh, He was the goalkeeper coach, I believe, under Roberto De Zerbi, uh, and then went into coaching, so lots of De Zerbian ideas there as well, so maybe they're one to keep an eye on uh, in Ligue 1. I'm going to go to the Premier League, because, uh, which sounds boring, right, because we all know what's going on in the Premier League, but um, I need to talk about Andoni Areola, who was recently the Rayo Vallecano manager in uh, La Liga um, has moved to Bournemouth and I think he will be one of the fun coaches to watch this season because I think what you tend to see in particularly in the Premier League is you get elite football um, where they're playing a very specific sort of possession-based style of play and then you have you know everyone else at the bottom battling it out and um, a lot of the time the, the emphasis is on to be is on being you know defensively stolid and making sure that you're not giving away too much trying to hit trying to hit on the break and I think I mean Iriola is still within that kind of genre of, of, of football club uh, football team but what's so interesting about him is that he is using a lot of this the, the hybrid pressing that we talked about um, earlier which is you know being able to destabilize uh, oppositions in their build-up phase um, and then drop back into those low blocks without having to give up too much um, of a risk at the back and I think that's that's going to be really fascinating watching in the Premier League um, because yeah I guess the idea is is that you you have a really um, intelligent out of possession approach and then you have what what's really interesting for me is how he then has solutions once you've turned the ball over this is how we attack um so um yeah very very sort of transitional football uh, but with a with a very smart um uh, out of possession approach and i'm kind of interested to see how that goes particularly because we've uh, already seen jesse marsh last season um at leeds united the big questions there about whether or not you can approach uh, the premier league with the out of possession uh, uh, side of the game being your your main upside um 
obviously with Jesse Marsh it's a very different type of out of possession approach and so I'm kind of interested to see whether or not Bournemouth like rise or fall on on the on the basis of their of their intelligent approach so yeah that that's that's my tip for a team who will be interesting to watch in the in the Premier League do you have any Premier League team that you're particularly interested in from a t- tactical point of view Bournemouth is one that I think a lot of people have been mentioning um that I'm really intrigued to see Based on their signings as well that they've brought in, um, I mean, they had a really good January window, I think, particularly Dangle Wataro, who was, was excellent in the second half of the season. And again, it's one of those sort of direct wingers that will exploit teams when fullbacks do sort of play inside. And a couple of their signings, Alex Scott, of course, has been on the lips of everyone, I think, for the past few seasons from Bristol City. But Milos Kerkez is a really, really good young left back coming out of the, the Alkmaar Academy. Um, the AZ Academy, sorry, I should say. Uh, again, another fullback that can play inside, can be creative. Um, it's really, really, really nice. Max Aaron's bringing him from Norwich and they've got, I think, five, six signings. Um, they've spent a bit of money in places, but but so be it. All under the age of 24. Um, Hammer Trio raised another one from, from Sassuolo um, and Roma Favre as well from Lyon. So, you know, they've really sort of stacked up and really sort of built upon that, um, which I guess is exactly what Scott Parker presumably was asking for <laughs> this time last year. I was, was told in no uncertain terms wasn't there. And Justin Clivert as well, um, shouldn't forget. So there's obviously parts that they need to fit in and need to evolve a squad. But um, yeah, I, I haven't seen too much of your Iola um, or his teams previously. So I'm very much looking to enjoy that. And, and just there isn't going to be many clean sheets, let me tell you. So you might not enjoy it that much. In. Um, but yeah, interesting that you mentioned Milos Kerkes there because he was playing for RZ Alkmaar, as you mentioned, um, and they were a team that you had as well as a fun team to, to watch as well. But did you want to add anyone else to the list of teams that you're excited about watching next season? I think Middlesbrough were a fun one. Uh, they were championship playoff uh, semi-final losers uh, last season at uh, home to Coventry. But um, no, they were previously managed by Chris Wilder um, and I think were in sort of the bottom five or six sort of when when he left and, and Michael Carrick there has done an exceptional job um, seems to be another one adding to that trend of sort of central midfielders coming through and becoming coaches but um, actually they were attacking similarly to what we were saying before in terms of sort of elbow backs or having that asymmetric approach of admittedly it was Ryan Giles who um, has now just gone to Luton as a really really good creative left back and um, that would push on and their right back would tuck round so they'd effectively turn what looks like a I guess a 43 one on paper to almost like a 3-4-3 three, three. Um, and Chubrak from up top who Arsenal fans will know of Brighton fans will know of from alone I think he was at Hull as well he'd, he'd been around a bit and just hadn't really taken off having had a good youth career um, and then went and scored I think it was almost 30 goals last season and, and really um, yeah really took off there so I think they might be an interesting team as someone that would you know hadn't even had a full season there um, for what they might push on and do next season Um and it's just good because the championship, I think, is notoriously a hard league to do that in and to be tactical because um, it just has its ways of working um, and everything that comes with it. So I think they'll be good fun to watch next season. Yeah, there's a few things here. I guess one, you mentioned Michael Carrick. There's also Kieran McKenna, who's gone through the Manchester United School of, of Coaching. Um, he's at Ipswich this season in the championship, so it'll be fascinating to see how he does. He's uh, playing some some fun stuff as well. Uh, but also, yeah, as you've mentioned, like what we're seeing in the championship now is a lot of coaches trying to play, you know, elite possessional football um, in that league. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Russell Martin, um, who's this, you know, the sort of uh, ultra build up one of the ultra build up coaches you've got Daniel Farker at Leeds as well who will be doing I mean he's inverting fullbacks and and, and doing a lot of first phase second phase stuff question always being you know what, what do these guys do in the third phase when they're actually attacking in the final third um so interesting stuff there but then again Maresca at, at Leicester as well who's come through the Pep Guardiola academy uh of 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 coaching and I suppose the big question for me is 
how how functional is that going to be? How functional is it going to be to to try and play that kind of uh, you know, positionally aware football in the championship where you're often going to be coming up against teams who are going to stodge, try and hit you on the break. Um, and, and you can have, I mean, we've seen it with with Russell Martin for a few seasons now, right? You have 70% possession, of 70, pushing like 80% possession and you can still lose games as well. So any thoughts on that? No, I think it just sort of shows where English football has come um, in sort of a, a few generations, or not in a few generations, sorry, but in a, a few decades really that... Um, and something that obviously ties in nicely to the P and what's gone on with the with the national teams across all the age groups and, and men's and women's game as well. Um, so I, I wonder if it's just sort of almost an overcorrection sort of thing of like there's certain coaches or certain styles of play that want what I might say at times is sort of too much possession um, or it can just be, you know, or view that in the wrong sense, sorry, of like, it's not worth possession to attack. It can be defensive possession and it might just be a case of like, if we can control the ball for 80% of the time, well, that's 20% where either we have to defend or those transitional moments and we want to reduce those because we don't like them or we don't think we're good at them with the squad that we have. Um, so yeah, there's, there's always adaptations and I think it's always hard to judge coaches, particularly when they're so early into their managerial tenure and like the EFL was notoriously hard to coach in any way that you know, the turnover of players is difficult even the pitch quality at times even in the championship like there's certain pitches and particularly in the English winter anyone who's lived in England will tell you how bad the pitches can get even at the top level um, so yeah I, I wonder how these things might evolve but um, I think it's often hard to judge them too early on in their careers well Liam it's been great chatting to you about next season from a tactical point of view I uh, hope you are looking forward to it as much as I am I am yeah, and you can, of course, read all of Liam's stuff over at The Athletic, so do go and check him out. And I've already mentioned his piece is called Tactics to Look Out for this season. Anti-positional football, Xabi Alonso and Middlesbrough, that is over on The Athletic. But Liam, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. An absolute pleasure. Mm-hmm.